What's up, Rev? How we doing? All right. I'll just assume that you guys didn't hear that. Um, thank you, Autumn. Thank you. Well, welcome to Revolution. If you guys have not been here yet, um, this is our new building. So thanks for coming out to worship with us tonight. Um, just a few announcements. They should have... Can you put up the slide of the uh, small groups? We have some of these small groups still going on. Um, uh, well, they'll put them up, hopefully. Um, if not now, at the end of the service. <clears throat> so, uh, j- if you want to, if you want to get involved in some small groups, we have some at Shawnee. We have some going around in the East End, and Dave and Ryan both have some throughout the week. So, if you guys are not involved, we'd love to have you more involved. Um, just talk, come talk to anybody who's on the stage um, throughout the week or throughout the night. Sorry, not the week. <laughs> um, and uh, would love to get you more involved. Um, today was the last day to bring in items, uh, clothing items, or just any anything you want to give away. Um, for free market. Um, in two weeks, the 7th of November, we will be meeting here um, that Saturday morning to help, uh, we'll be helping sort out and, and um, you know, free market will be happening. So we'll keep you posted about um, all of that, getting things sorted out and everything. Um, and uh, communion is next week as well. So um, that'll, be, that'll be great, um, something to keep in mind. And also next weekend is Dave's a Reformation Party. Um, so, free to come out. Um, if you don't know the address, um, just talk to him. He'll let you know. I'm not really sure. I don't have it on the tip of my tongue. But it's going to be at 6.30. It's going to have some food and some fellowship. So, it should be a lot of fun. Um, I think it's pretty much... Oh, yeah. Lock your cars. If you guys aren't used to coming here yet, um, just, you know, we're going to keep saying that for the next few weeks. Um, lock your cars. We're in the East End, and um, we don't have a huge, big parking lot. Um, so... People would love to just come and steal your stuff, so make sure you lock them. Um, I think that's all the announcements I have, so they're going to play some music and just greet someone you don't know. So, What's up, Revolution? I'll take it. It's nice to see you. I see some people that I haven't seen in a minute. How you doing, man? I see a couple of new people here, so that's awesome. Um, but tonight, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Um, we started doing this uh, sermon series called Alone, right? which doesn't mean that we're super depressed and all by ourselves. Uh, we're going through these things called the five solas, and uh, sola means alone. So you see how clever we were with our marketing tactics. Um, so we're going through these five solas, and um, what they are, they're, they're essentially these five core uh, beliefs of Christianity. All right, in these solas, I'll spare you guys all the Latin words, because Latin, anyone else, like, get creeped out by Latin really bad? Like, you think it sounds like satanic? Maybe it's all, like, the exorcism movies that I watch, I don't know. Um, but here are, like, here are the five solas, here are the five main core doctrines of Christianity. Scripture only, right, Scripture alone, uh, which we talked about last week. We talked about that the Bible's the Word of God, that it's been given to us. Uh, by God himself, why we believe that, why we believe it's true, and that it carries all authority, all weight over us, and it tells us everything we need to know about faith and practice. Um, So that's scripture alone. And the other four are grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. That's how you're saved. That's the gospel. By God's grace through faith in Christ. That's how we're saved from God's wrath and hell. And then the last one is glory to God alone. All right, so scripture is the foundation. We base our beliefs about the gospel off of that. And then glory to God alone is the only thing that's left to say because if we're saved by grace, through faith in Christ, we had nothing to do with our salvation. God accomplished it completely without our help. So glory to him for our salvation and only him. 
right? So just throwing that out to you. That's, that's, the, that's the series idea. And tonight we're going to actually pair uh, two of them together. And next week we're going to pair two together and knock this whole thing out within the next couple of weeks. Um, but tonight we're pairing together grace alone and glory to God alone. Um, so just to give you guys some definitions real quick. Um, whenever I say grace alone, here's what I mean. That God has saved us completely by himself and by his work with nothing contributed from us on our behalf at all. Right? And that makes sense because grace means unmerited favor. Right? Whenever the Bible talks about the grace of God or grace being given to us through Jesus, it means unmerited favor, an undeserved gift, an unearned gift. Um, so we have done nothing but receive a gift if you're a Christian. You've been saved by God's unmerited favor alone. And hear me on this. If you contribute anything to your salvation on your part, it's no longer a gift. Right? But you've earned it instead. I can't remember the Puritan that wrote this, but he said, if a king wants to give you a kingdom, um, and he just gives it to you, it was a gift. But if the king says, I want to give you this kingdom, give me one penny, and I'll give you the kingdom. Even though the penny is significantly like less valuable than the entire kingdom, that was still a transaction. You still earned it. You worked for it. You paid for it yourself. Um, so, again, if we have to do anything, it's no longer a gift. Um, so that's what grace alone means. God did everything completely by himself without our help. And whenever we say glory to God alone, we mean this. Since God has saved us completely by his work and by his will alone, then all praise is due to him for everything. Right? Actually, and, and when I say everything, I don't just mean our salvation. Actually, the first chapter of James, go home and read it. Um, the first chapter of James says, every good and perfect gift, everything we receive that we enjoy, everything is a gift, of, a gift from our Father in heaven. Right? So everything, food, um, your home, your car, your clothes, everything. So he deserves glory for all of it, and no one else deserves anything. Um, so, now before we go on, I, I want to warn you guys about something. Um, a lot of the stuff that I'm getting ready to say is going to challenge a lot of you. I'm just, I'm just coming out just straight out of the gates with it. It's going to challenge a lot of us here. Um, and I have been praying all week. I just got done praying this, that God would help us to be attentive, and that God would help us to understand um, what he says about grace and what he says about his own glory so that we could see his great mercy and grace given to us and appreciate it better. So I, I pray that we would just be attentive. So you, you might hear some stuff this evening that you don't agree with. Um, and some of this stuff is going to stretch you, I'm sure. Uh, but I, I want you to hear me out until the very end because often we, in my experience, we bring preconceived notions about God, about ourselves, about our salvation, right? about how we became saved. We bring preconceived notions to the table without ever asking ourselves, is that what the Bible really says? Right? So again, just bear with me. So tonight we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Um, there are blue Bibles in those pews. If you don't have one or the Bible you have at home has like a lot of these and nows, you don't really understand it, take it home with you. Um, but it's going to also be up here on the projector behind me. But before we go to the scriptures, before we check out what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, um, I'd like to pose a question to you guys. This is going to be fun. What do you think you deserve? What do you think you deserve? It's a pretty easy question, right? What do you think you deserve in life or, or in general? Right? And I, I ask that because often in our conversations that we have with each other or on Facebook, and I always mention Facebook and social media because, like, I love getting on there and seeing, like, pictures of cats and, like, all these YouTube videos. I love it. I love social media. Um, but we see on Facebook and our conversations on television, uh, you know, whatever, we, we see this sense of entitlement that is America, right? We see this huge sense of entitlement, and we're all prone to it. And what I mean is, we've all seen this. 
Uh, anyone used to watch like Super Sweet 16 on MTV? Yeah, I'm not the only I thought that made me like kind of like chickish, but whatever. I used to watch that a lot. I can't help it. Um, and we, we've all seen videos like this where, where there's some kid who gets like, a, he, he just turned 16. He gets like this beater, like like $800, $1,000 car with a, a, rust, a rust bucket, right? It's a hoopty. Anyone know what a hoopty means? <laughs> just throwing that out there. Rolf used that term on me earlier. Like, I loved it. Um, but it's just like a, a kind of a junky car, and this kid freaks out, right? Starts cussing his parents, gets super mad because he thinks he deserves a better car than the one that they got him, right? Because if he, if he thought that he didn't deserve a car at all, he'd be very happy that he received any kind of car. But clearly, the guy in the video thought he deserved something better, so he freaks out on his parents. Again, the sense of entitlement that he thinks he deserves, right? Or we, um, whenever someone, we see this posted on Facebook a lot. Like, so-and-so said this to me, and then someone's like, oh, girl, you deserve so much better than him, right? You ever see those things where someone's, like, mean, and you deserve better than this. So, like, you get yelled at by your boss, and you're like, I deserve a better job than this. Um, and I'm not telling you, by the way, if, like, if you're in a bad relationship, like, and you're not married, I'm not telling you to stay in it. And if you're married, I'm telling you, like, get marriage counseling. Like, I'm not saying, like, to, like, just put up with it and be cool. Um, but we have, like, this I deserve better than X kind of mentality, right? Or especially this, something bad happens to us. And we all tend to think, I don't deserve this. Why is this happening to me? I did nothing to deserve this bad thing happening. All right, so I ask again, what do you think you deserve? Ask yourself that. Like a home, a decent car, right? Not, nothing extra- extravagant, right? You're like We deserve a spouse, health, decent job that pays all right. Like we usually think stuff like that, right? Like I deserve like not the extravagant or greatest, but like just a pretty happy existence. Generally what we think. But I, I bet you the first thing that came to your mind was not, I deserve hell. That was probably not the first thing you thought. But you do. And I do too. I'm not exempting myself from that. I'm the biggest sinner I know. Uh, we all deserve hell. But we don't usually think that way. We think we deserve something else. But remember this. The Bible is our authority. It's the word of God. It carries all weight over us. It teaches us this. Everyone has broken God's law. Everyone. Right? God tells us things like, forgive your enemies, love those who hate you, don't be greedy, stay sexually pure, be sober, be honest. Right? We, we, we see God commanding us to do these things. And the number one thing, love him and worship him, and we don't. Daily, we say, no, nah, I think I'd rather do things my way, which is self-worship. To, to disobey what God commands is to say, I'm going to worship myself in this instance. So we all worship ourselves, and God says, when you sin, that's what sin is, is rebellion against God. When you rebel against his commands, you deserve his wrath. You deserve hell. And this is everyone. Everyone has done this. The Bible says everyone is a sinner. So think about this. Everyone you've ever met, from like the 90-year-old sainted grandmother who like has went to this Baptist church for 70 years, to like, to like the, the prostitute who is addicted to heroin on the corner, everyone deserves hell. Everyone. Let that sink in. Like, that's heavy. Right? And again, we're born sinners. Right? So we're born with this nature. We are not born with an inclination to love God. We're actually born with the opposite, an inclination to disobey Him. We're not born worshipers of God. We're born sinners. So when you think about it this way, and this is, this is heavy, God has every right from the moment that we're born to kill us and damn us immediately. I'm not saying that's what he does. I'm not saying that children go to hell. I'm not, I'm not getting into that this evening. But he has the right to. Sinners deserve hell from birth. Period. And yet, here we are. 
right? How crazy is that? And yet here we are. That's what we actually deserve from God, and he would be completely righteous and justified in doing that. And yet here we are. We're alive. We're breathing. We're not in hell. That is grace, right? We eat. We sleep. We laugh. We love. We have families, right? We, we, we have clothes. Um, and we deserve none of it. We've broken God's law, right? So why, and this is just insane for me to think about, why would he ever give me anything to enjoy ever when I've been such a rebel against him? Why would he do that? Everything we have in general is from unmerited favor given to us, right? And Christians especially should understand grace, right? We're not in hell now, and we never will be. Right? We should really understand grace. Right? We have been saved by God's wrath through what Jesus has done for us. Coming to earth, living a sinless life that we couldn't live, and then offering himself up in our place to, sat- to satisfy God's wrath that was on us for our sin. And then making us righteous if we would have faith in him. Right? How gracious is that? That God himself would pardon and die for those who have rebelled against him. How gracious is that? That's crazy to me. Like, I stand in awe of that on a regular basis. It makes no sense because I wouldn't have loved me. Every Christian in there can admit that. I wouldn't have forgiven me. But there's a strong majority of Christians who, who don't understand or just like out and out reject this doctrine, right? This belief um, that we've been saved by grace alone, right? And what I mean by that is, is they'll... Again, they don't understand or they'll just out and out reject how deep this grace stretches, right? Just how desperately, thoroughly, and completely that we need God to do the work for us in order to save us, right? Many people believe, sure, I've been saved by grace, right? Usually meaning that God has extended salvation out to me, but that they also had a part in their salvation. And what I mean by that um, is that as, as God extended grace to them, that they completely on their own, Hear me, that they completely on their own, with no intervention from God, from their total free will, chose to believe the gospel and somehow conjured up within themselves the faith to believe. That's, that's what most people believe. That's what most Christians believe. So when it really, when, when you come down to it by like what, what Martin Luther called resistless logic, they chose and that's why they're saved. Not the grace of God, but they chose. And what I mean by that is, is that's not grace alone that saved them then. That is God's grace plus my will and my complete uninhibited free choice. And in this thinking, this might sound offensive, I'm just, I'm just throwing out the logic. In this kind of thinking, I become the determining factor in my salvation, not God's grace. I become the determining factor then. But what if there's a more biblical way to view salvation? And there is. Jonah chapter 2 verse 9 says, salvation is of the Lord, period. No one else is mentioned. Salvation is from him. Right? So in this doctrine of grace alone, we find, and we're going to see, just this huge, huge God who saves us, who does all the work to save us from the beginning to the end, and we are just mere recipients of salvation. And listen, we desperately need a huge, powerful God who doesn't rely on us for anything. Because if we're honest, if we're relied on for any part of our salvation, we'll screw it up. Right? Let's just be real for a second. We know how bad we suck. We'll mess this up ourselves. But when we really understand that we are merely beggars who have received bread from God, our war cry is going to become glory to God alone for my salvation. And this is what God wants from us. 
giving him all glory. Where he did it, I received it. He keeps me in faith. He chose me. And because of that, I am saved. And I can rest in that because it's all his work and not mine. And that's what he wants from us. But if we're going to really dig into this and we're going to talk about God's grace, um, if we're going to really understand how badly we need grace, we need to understand something about ourselves. We need to understand the human condition is what I usually call it, right? Like, to what extent do I need grace, right? How much grace is needed? Is there any good in me whatsoever? Like, could I have conjured up faith by myself somehow because there's a little bit of good left in me, right? Um, So we're going to check out what the Bible says about us as human beings, right? Let's look at the state that we're in from the beginning. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says, Paul says this. We're in the ESV tonight while we're in Ephesians. Um, I like the wording better. Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is, Paul's talking to Christians. He says, you once were. So this is how we once were. If you're a Christian, this is how all people are that aren't Christians. By nature, children of God's wrath, dead in their sin. Right, think about that. Dead. Dead in your sin. Let that sink in for a second. What Paul means by that is spiritually dead. And on top of that, he says, Satan, right, the devil, is the one at work in the hearts of those who disobey God. Like a slave master. Right? They follow him. They do what he wants them to do. And what does Satan always want us to do? He's the one who tempts us to sin. Right? So we're always falling prey to that. We're always going with what he wants us to do. We're following the course of the world, which is to sin. We're following our own passions and desires. And by nature, we're spiritually dead. So that's to keep on sinning. Right? We're slaves. And all of us were once that way. Right? And some of us still are. I'm, I'm, there are people in this room, I'm sure, that are still spiritually dead, right? Maybe they've tricked themselves into thinking that they're not because they come to church every Sunday or, you know, believe in this generic vague God or whatever, and they think that's good enough. Um, they've tricked themselves. But all of us were that way once, sinning and obeying our sinful nature. Again, slaves to sin. And Paul says because of that, because of our sin, because of our spiritual death that we were born into, that by nature, naturally, from the time we're born, we're children of wrath. Not children of God, but children of his anger, children of his displeasure. Right? Romans 6 talks about this idea a ton, and we don't have time to go into that chapter, but I recommend, again, we talked about this last week, back, like, like, like fact check me on it. Right? Romans 6. Read that when you get home. But Paul talks about this a lot. He says, by nature, we're slaves to sin. And listen to me. Slaves have no will of their own. They don't. Slaves cannot choose to do anything. They do the will of their master always. And the reason why I say that, right, because you're saying, well, Dave, are you, like, drawing your own conclusions, like, because you have a preconceived notion of how God saves people? No, I'm not. I'm drawing a parallel between Paul says that he is a slave to Jesus, Meaning, I no longer do what I want to do, but I do as Jesus commands me to do. I live for him. So if that's Paul's view of a slave, and he says you're a slave to sin, you do what sin tells you to do. And sin will always tell you to sin more. Always. This is the helpless state. And I say helpless because it is, that we're born into. God says that our hearts are set like stone 
against him. We don't want anything to do with him. But I know that there are people in here, I'm sure, that are saying, surely I'm not that bad. Surely there's something, there's a little bit of good in me. I think I'm a decent person. No, you're not. This is the power of sin. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. This is the power of sin. Paul's quoting Isaiah in a psalm. He says, as the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. He's talking about mankind. The state that we're born into, this is us. None. None seek God. None do good. And again, you can say, well, I do good. Like I I might help a homeless person out or, or something like that occasionally. Not from God's perspective. Because whatever's not done to his glory to promote Jesus is not good. Whatever's not done in faith to Christ is not good. It's all still sin from God's perspective. Paul says all are useless and no one fears God at all. So we, by our nature, are all wicked. Not a little wicked, but ridiculously wicked. Again, how often do you think things that you shouldn't think? I, I use this a lot. How often do you think things you shouldn't think? Right? Like, yeah, I'd like to bang her, or like, I really wish I could get, like, revenge on this guy, or like, screw that guy, he, he, he got me, I'd like to get him back, or I should have said this, that would have really hurt them, or, you know, I wouldn't mind taking something that doesn't belong to me, or uh, just whatever. Like, we think things that we shouldn't think all the time. God says that's sin, or, or to make it a little bit easier, have you even ever obeyed the Ten Commandments perfectly? I haven't. Have you ever taken anything that didn't belong to you? you ever lied? Uh, have sex before you're married of any kind? Disobey your parents? Like, let's be real here. Like, I was the worst kid growing up ever, right? Everyone's disobeyed their parents. No one has obeyed their parents perfectly, and that's one of the Ten Commandments, right? So by our hearts and our actions, we're proved to be just as wicked as God himself proclaims that we are. And furthermore, everyone has that one sin. I'm convinced. Everyone has that one sin that whenever they remember what they did, they get sick to their stomach. Everyone has one thing that will keep you awake at night if it comes to your mind. We prove our wickedness and our sinfulness by our lives. None seek God. None. So, so what am I getting at? What is, what is Paul driving toward? This. We can't choose Jesus on our own. We're too wicked. We don't seek him. We don't want him. Right? Romans, Romans chapter 8, verse 6 says, like the mindset on the flesh, right? your natural mind, the mind you were born with, is hostile against God. It hates God. It says it will not obey Him or please Him. Indeed, it cannot. You don't want God with the mind that you're born with. You don't want God with your nature. Romans seven eighteen says, I know nothing good is in me that is in my sinful nature. We're spiritually dead. Dead. We don't want God. Again, we don't seek God. We don't obey Him. We don't desire to submit to Him. We don't have faith in Jesus. Nothing. And furthermore, consider this. Paul says, you were dead in verse 1. What do dead men do? Nothing. They rot and they stay dead. They can't reanimate themselves. They can't do anything. They're just dead. So how badly do we need God's grace? 
How badly do we need God to do something that we cannot do? More than we could ever have imagined. Since in our natural state we are dead, follow me on this. Since in our natural state we are dead, God is going to have to do something supernatural to us if we are ever going to have faith in Jesus and believe the gospel and be saved. He's going to have to do something first. He's going to have to be the primary actor. And that is exactly what he did for those of us who believe in Jesus. Ephesians 2, 4 through 10 says, we have been this wicked, right? We've been this wicked, we've been sinful, we've hated God, we've been following Satan, we've been following our own way, we've been following the world, but God. That's insane. These are the two best words in the Bible. But God, in spite of us, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Paul can't hold it in. He's interrupting himself. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul says here in those first few verses, God has raised us from the dead. If you're a Christian, God has raised you from spiritual death. We were dead in our sins, and he is the active. He has made us alive. This is God bringing us to spiritual life. This is God opening our blind eyes that were set against him to the gospel. God himself is the one who has caused us to desire him, not us. This is what the Bible is talking about, actually. This is a fun concept. I was talking to my mom about this yesterday. This is what the Bible talks about when it talks about us being born again. Right? You, you hear that a lot. Like a lot of Christians use the term born again. They have no idea what it means. <laughs> Right? Or like Cooley says, I've been born again, 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 again. He always says that. I think it's funny. Whatever. Um, but like you see, like, I've been born again. Um, I'm a new creature in Christ. Uh, you hear preachers talk about the new birth. And being born again is this. It's receiving a new nature that you've not had from birth that now desires to submit to God and believe where you were so hostile against him that God himself has given you a new nature. Right? We can't change what we are by our own will. And what I mean by that is, like, if you don't like heavy metal music, like, you can't make yourself like metal, right? Like, I've tried to get Ryan to make himself like metal for, like, the last four years. He hates it. Like, there's nothing, he's weird. There's, like, nothing that, that he can do about it. He's like, I think that's garbage. I don't think that's good music. He can't change, he can't change what he likes. We can't change our likes. We can't change our desires by ourselves. That's one of the reasons I know that this is of God, if we were once so hostile against him and now we desire him. Another thing is this. Did any of you guys choose to be born the first time? Because if you did, you should write a book, because that is incredible, right? <laughs> but none of us chose to be born the first time, so it must be God who chooses us to be born again. It must be. We had nothing to do with our first birth, so what makes you think we would have something to do with our second birth? It makes no sense. Right? So we receive this new nature, and it changes everything. This new nature gives us new desires to obey God and believe the gospel, to have faith. Paul says that, that before we didn't believe because we were spiritually blind, but now we see. Second Corinthians chapter 4 says this, 
This is heavy. If the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, which means if people don't believe, if they don't understand, if they don't believe the gospel, it is hidden only from people who are perishing. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand the message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. So if someone doesn't believe, it's because they're blind. Satan has blinded them. Their heart has spiritual blinders on it. And then Paul goes on and says, You see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. So he says, we preach the gospel. And then he's going to tell you the why. Right? So if we're spiritually blind and Satan has such a like, death grip on us, then how is Paul preaching the gospel? He says, for God, who said, let there be light in the darkness, just like he did in Genesis. For God, who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus. So Paul says that God gave them sight so that they could believe. So God giving us this new nature happens before we come to faith in Jesus. We don't conjure up faith by ourselves. He's the one who grants it to us. So God is actually the one who's bringing us to faith and giving us faith. Paul says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Whenever he says this, in like the Greek grammatical structure, this refers to both faith and grace. It's all a gift. You didn't believe by yourself. You didn't. God granted it to you. He chose to give you faith. But, Why would God do this? Why would he do this? Like, this is the unfathomable part, if you're a Christian, that absolutely bewilders me every time that I think about it. Why would God do this? I'm a sinner. I'm wicked. I don't want him. This is a lot of work to save us. He has to do every single thing for us. So why? This is the question I ask myself on a regular basis when I reflect on salvation. Why would he reach down and pursue us? Why? Why would he pursue us? Why would he decide to work in us? Two reasons. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Why did God choose to do this? He is rich in mercy. Grace is giving you what you don't deserve. Mercy is not giving you what you do deserve. This is why he's just so merciful. As much as he is full of wrath and hatred and punishment for sin, and we talk about that a lot here at Revolution, and in glory to God, we should. But as as wrathful and angry as he is with sin, he is rich in mercy. He says, because of the great love with which he loved us, he loves us so much that he wants to show us how much he loves us. This is, this is grace. He, he does it because it is in his character to rescue and save. It, it was his good plan to choose us, to, to, to know the gospel, to believe, to choose to work in us. It was his good will, his good disposition, an outpouring of his mercy and love given to us. Let that sink in. He loves us. And wants to show us mercy. And the second reason is this. Verse 7, Paul says, Why did he do this? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in in Christ Jesus. So why? Let me condense that down. For his glory. For his glory. So that for all of eternity, he saved us for this reason. For all of eternity, we can bear witness to the unfathomable grace of God. 
Like, we're his workmanship. For all of eternity, he can point to us and say, I am mighty to save. Look what I did. They couldn't do it for themselves. Praise me. I deserve glory for this. I did this so that I would be praised by them and they would stand as evidence for how great that I am and how merciful I am and for how much I love those who hated me. Because he is merciful, because he loves us and to his glory and no other reason. No other reason were you saved. It was not that God saw something, in, like something desirable in us and chose to love us. That's, that's not it, right? Because God hates sin. We're sinners. We're the embodiment of sin. There's nothing in us that he would love just because of us. So we did nothing to deserve this, right? It wasn't hidden potential in us that God said, you know, Ryan would make a really good worship leader, so I'm going to save him so that you can, he can be a guitar player. Or, you know, Crystal's very kind, so, you know, I think she would, be very, like, she would be awesome for the kingdom to encourage people. That's not it. It wasn't hidden potential. It wasn't hidden potential in us. It was not how good we are, because we suck, right? We sin, we rebel against them, and it wasn't how bad we are. It wasn't, oh, you're especially bad. So I'm going to save you, and you're just only kind of bad, so no, not so much you, right? That's not it, right? And it definitely wasn't because we asked for Jesus. We had no fear of God. We didn't seek God. We were useless. We didn't ask for a Savior. It was all, listen, it was all because of his richness and mercy and for his glory that we're saved. All right, so I want you to follow me on this. We're going to sum everything up we've said so that we can see this just very clearly. And so we can get a good look at this. By nature, by our birth, we were God's enemies. We don't like to think of ourselves that way, but we were. We were God's enemies. We didn't desire God. We were headed to hell. We deserved that. We did not ask for Jesus. We couldn't be perfectly righteous because we screw up every day. We couldn't make atonement for ourselves, right? We couldn't make ourselves righteous in God's eyes. We couldn't suffer the penalty for our sin and still live or we'd still be in hell, right? We couldn't rise from the dead. And we couldn't and we wouldn't choose Jesus, But God pursued us. He chose to save us. He sent Jesus, God the Son, right? So God himself comes to earth and makes atonement for us. He suffers God's wrath for us. He was perfectly righteous for us to give us his righteousness before God. He rose from the dead for us so that we would rise from the dead someday. God gave us the gift of faith. God drew us to himself through the power of the Holy Spirit. And God will see us through in faith until the day we die. Now I want you to ask yourself this question. Who is the author and perfecter of your faith? According to the writer of Hebrews, it's Jesus. In all the things that I just said, summing up what John taught in this chapter, who is the active worker and who is the passive recipient? Who worked and who just received? God saved us from himself, from his wrath, and he saved us by himself through what his son did, and he saved us for himself, his glory. He did it all, and we did nothing. I want you to see this. I want you to see that God has orchestrated our salvation in such a way that it's all about him. It's all about him. It's all about his goodness towards sinners. And we take absolutely zero credit in it. It's all by his grace and for his glory. Now, I've got some implications of why this matters. I've got some implications of why we need to know that this is true. Right, because I'll, I'll tell you this: if we like just learn these doctrines and we say, "Okay, check that off the list of crap that I need to know," these are the core doctrines of Christianity, and it doesn't 
affect how we live or how we view our salvation or how we view ourselves or how we view God or it doesn't affect our gratitude for God, then it's worthless. You can study all the theology in the world, and, and that's awesome, but if it doesn't change you at all, you just like read Harry Potter. Like It's probably more fun anyway, if we're going to be honest. right? But there are, here are some implications for why we need to know this. Uh, the first one is in how we evangelize. How we evangelize, what, uh, what the backbone of our evangelism is towards those. That's telling people the gospel that don't know Jesus. Um, and here's what I say, and I'm going I'm to say this kind of negatively, but it's going to make my point. Um, people who believe that they, sh- that they chose God all by themselves must think that it was by their logic, that it was by their cleverness, that it was by their reasoning, or because the person that was telling them the gospel was just so articulate and so heartfelt that they believed. Make sense? If you did it all by yourself, if you chose to come to faith all on your own, if you made such a good decision, then it must be because you were just so clever or the person telling you was just so persuasive. So then, naturally, if you think that, you're going to get frustrated whenever you talk to a non-believer and share the gospel with them and they reject Jesus. You're going to get mad. Right? And I say this because I've seen it with my own eyes. Uh, This preacher came into the store that I work at and he was talking to uh, a woman who isn't a Christian, and this woman believes that the Bible's true. She believes Christianity is the true religion. And, uh, and this woman, he, he said, so do you, you know you're going to hell. She goes, yeah, I know, and I, I don't want to be a Christian. And he says, what, are you stupid? And began to, like, berate this woman for, like, you must be an idiot. Like, can you not logically fathom, like, 70 years in, like, faithful worship to Jesus, and you get eternal life, or you can do 70 years for what you want, and then go to hell. And he got mad, and he called her stupid, right? Which reveals that he thought he was clever enough on his own to choose Jesus. But if we believe that salvation is the free gift of God, that he chose us so that we would choose him, then we should never be annoyed or irritated or arrogant towards unbelievers. Ever. Especially whenever we share the gospel with them. They're spiritually blind. They're dead in their sin. They can't conjure that up in themselves. So instead of being angry or irritated or arrogant, what we should be in our evangelism process, like we shouldn't be like, oh man, I need to go learn more apologetics, or man, I need to become a, a better public speaker so that I can tell these people this stuff. No, we should just be pushed so hard to prayer that it's unfathomable. And the reason why I say that is because we recognize that God is going to have to be the one who changes them. They're not going to change themselves, and we're not going to argue them into being a Christian. We should be driven to, just to our knees to pray for them. I'm not saying that we, don't, like that we, that we stop talking with them about Jesus. Or I'm, not saying, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not dogging on apologetics or anything like that, but we don't rely on our efforts. Rather, we rely on God to do His work. And that's freeing if you're trying to, trying to convert people to Christianity, to know that it's not on you, but God is the one who has to do a sovereign work in them. Right, and I know that there are some people here, um, I'm sure, who disagree with some or all of what I've said this evening. Um, this is the second implication. Um, these things that, that God has to choose you first or you never choose him, or that your response, to faith in, or your response of faith in the gospel is God's work and you have no part in your salvation. I know people here adamantly reject that. I, I get that. But I've got to say this because I love you, and I don't mean this like backhanded, like, oh, I love you, so I'm about to like, talk to you like a dog. Anyone else ever get that sometimes? I'm telling you because I love you. Uh, you suck. Uh, no, it's, not, it's, not, it's not what I'm doing. Um, I'm saying this. Because I love you, you have probably never considered the implications of believing that you played a role in your salvation. 
You've probably never thought about this before if, if you're like standing like strongly opposed to everything that I've said. Here's what I mean. When we try to say that we have done anything, right, synergism, working alongside God, like a, a co-worker with God for our salvation, when we try to say we've had any part in it by ourselves, we attempt to rob God of his glory. We attempt to. Well, I mean, you can't. <laughs> it's God. But you try to real hard. And what I mean is this. If you chose God all by yourself, your volition, your total, like, uninhibited free will, then you cannot, in good conscience, say glory to God alone for being saved. You can't. You can't do it. Because you did something. You chose alone. You chose. All right, so it was really your choice and not God's grace that made the difference in whether or not you were saved or not. So you can't say glory to God alone. And the problem with that is God says in Isaiah, I will share my glory with none. None. I will share it with none. He says, I saved you. He's talking to Israel then. I think it applies to us now. I saved you for my name's sake. Not because you deserved it, but I'm going to bring you back from captivity. I'm going to save you because I said I will. Nothing to do with you for my glory, for my name, and I share it with no one. My power, my work, my will saved you. And, and I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll shoot straight with you. I think that we don't like this um, because we want some credit. Um, and this view of grace alone, solely God's grace given to us, makes us seem so insignificant, doesn't it? Like you don't matter. Like you did nothing. You just, God just gave it to you. It makes you feel incredibly insignificant and really helpless. Right? And it makes you feel helpless for other people who aren't Christians. Right? Like they can't do anything. Like, God has to do it. It makes you feel helpless and insignificant. And we don't like to feel that way. We like to feel like we're in some kind of control. But that's the point. Like, that's the point. God wants us to know our helplessness. He wants us to know our insignificance so that we would magnify Him alone with greater and greater thankfulness as we understand ourselves better and we understand Him better. And then lastly, and and this is huge to me, this is a huge implication um, of believing grace alone. I hold on to this daily, and and if you don't, I hope this is an encouragement. If our salvation is all by God's freely giving it to us, it has nothing to do with our moral perfection, it has nothing to do with our iron will to persevere, if it has nothing to do with anything but Him alone, listen, then you are saved if you believe the gospel. Like, Like, that's it. Like, think about that for a second. If it has nothing to do with me, I can say, I believe because God has put it in me to believe. I am saved. And nothing can take that. Because this is a work of God, and God doesn't fail. There's comfort there. If you didn't earn this gift, and you didn't, then you cannot unearn it by screwing up. You cannot unearn it. God is so rich in mercy and grace towards us that he says he will be the one to see it through to its completion. He says that he will see us through until we are fully and finally saved in death. And this is great news. Again, if you've disagreed with everything that I've said this evening, I hope you'll zero in on this. This is great news. This is a gift that you can't lose. right? Because if we're honest, if salvation hinges on me at all, I'll screw it up. I'll fail. I'll go to hell. But glory to God, it's not on me. All right, so we're going to go to 1 Peter 1, 3-5 real fast. He says, Blessed be 
the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That's your salvation. It's in heaven. God is keeping it safe for you. No one's going to mess with it. And then he says you. It's kept in heaven for you, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Paul, or Peter says we're being guarded. God is guarding us in our faith so that we would persevere in faithfulness to Christ until the end. God is guarding us so that we stay faithful. Why is it so important that we're being guarded in our faith by God himself? Right here. Because on your own, on my own, our hearts are so fickle. We are so sinful. We are so weak in our own flesh that we don't know what we're going to believe in tomorrow. You don't know what you're going to believe tomorrow. You don't know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're going to have faith in Jesus tomorrow by yourself. And what I mean is this. Your spouse dies. Your your grandma dies. Your mom dies. Your house burns down. You find out you're diagnosed with cancer. You lose your job, right? All these terrible things happen to you all in one day, all at one time. Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are strong enough to sustain your faith by yourself and your own will? No. No way. No way do you know that. We always say whenever we hear about these crazy stories, I don't know what I would do if that were me. And that's just so honest. You don't know what you'd do if that were you. Right? Left to our own, we'd probably turn our back on God in that moment and say, why would you do this to me? But if we're being guarded by God to persevere in faith, then we can sleep like babies. We can know that his grace is going to keep us. His grace is going to sustain us when we're weak. And his grace is going to save us. Right, so in light of, of all of that, we should just daily be on our knees thanking God for what he has worked in us and what he's continuing to work in us every day. Gratitude. We should have this incredible, thankful attitude. And because of that, we should live in worship to God. Right, we always say at Revolution, respond in gratitude. Right, In worshiping God, sure, we sing songs. Like, that's awesome. Um, you know, we pray, and that's cool, but, but worshiping God, Paul says, like, offer your life, offer your body as a living sacrifice to God, and that's your spiritual worship, right? That's obedience to Jesus, right? Seeking out what he says and saying, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show what he means to me, what he used to mean nothing to me. I'm going to show the world that he means everything to me now. That's living in gratitude. And then we can know that we can rest in his grace, Paul in Philippians 1.6 says, I know he who began the good work in you is going to see it to its completion. Right? He's going to see it through to the end. Take heart. God finishes what he starts. God doesn't fail. That knowledge keeps us going when we fail. That knowledge keeps us going to persevere in love for him because we know that his love and mercy is never going to run out for us. He's worked it in us, and he's going to keep it going because he's rich in grace. So let's leave here with hearts more aware of what a miracle it is that we see the glory of God, that we believe the gospel. Let's leave here understanding it is a miracle anytime someone becomes a Christian, and we should just like glory in God for that. And, and that then we would make our lives' mission, to make our lives a display of God's glory to the world, right? to show everyone that he now means more to us than anything. Make that your goal.
that we love him in that way, and it's all because of his glorious, sovereign, gracious, saving, keeping grace. Let's pray. Father, you are better to us than we deserve, and I hope that we all understand that better. We deserve nothing but hell. We have been hostile against you. We have rebelled against you. And even even those of us who are Christians, we still sin and rebel daily. Maybe not as much as we once did, but just in, in different ways. God, thank you for giving us grace that never runs out. For loving us without fail. Thank you for working faith in us and guarding our faith. Thank you for doing for us what we could not do ourselves. God, I pray that we would just have a a mind of of gratitude to you and we just become more prayerful as we're we're trying to tell people the gospel. God, I pray that we would never become arrogant. I pray we would never forget that we did nothing, that we've just merely received. Holy Spirit, empower us to live lives of gratitude to Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.